The rest of us who are stuck in here uh, with the message I'm bringing, uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? We'll be looking at verses 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant Even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as I look out on this congregation of people who gather here this day to worship you, thinking of the, the, the many events of our lives this day and this weekend and, and the excitement even later in the day as uh, Chris and Carolyn will be uh, joined together in marriage and we're just grateful for that reality and, and the joy that they're feeling and each of us is facing different emotions and different ideas and different thoughts. And so we turn our eyes to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask you to guide our thoughts even now to direct us to a higher theme, which is your glory. And we pray that you would utilize this preaching of your word to strengthen us, that our faith may grow, and that we may more and more rest in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our children and children's worship. Our desire is that the gospel would be powerful in their hearts that you would remember the promises that you made to Abraham, our father, when you said, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you, and that you will work redemptively in their hearts, giving them faith in the Lord Jesus, and that they will be changed. Change us as well, O God, that we may bring glory and honor to your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Each year, as uh, those who are part of the congregation are aware, I I choose a theme uh, for the preaching, and uh, in 2022, the theme that I felt that uh, God was uh, leading me to to preach about was the idea of following Jesus. And so we looked at a number of the Gospels in the beginning of 2022, but then on uh, April 3rd, we started a series in the book of Hebrews, and that's brought us to today. Now, we had a slight change in in, uh, this year as the theme has been to move forward, but that's primarily because there's a shift in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 in which the the emphasis begins to be, as as the the author says, but but we expect better things for you. And he invites the audience to move forward with faith and not to just keep looking back, but to keep moving forward. And so that's been our theme through this year, so we've continued the study of the book of Hebrews. And I want to just remind us a little bit, oh, I I guess I had in my notes here, uh, 44 sermons through the book of Hebrews. We've got two left. That counts today. So so next week should end up Hebrews. Um, But I want to remember what the first audience was, that who who received this letter, or, you know, possibly it was a a sermon that was written down. I'm, I'm not sure how all of that went. We don't really know who the author was other than the Holy Spirit. But we do know that the audience was Jewish Christians. This is uh, men, women, and children who'd grown up as Jews. They had grown up under the old administration of the covenant of grace. 
They had grown up with the, the, the rituals that we, we attribute to the Old Testament and we look at. They would have had the sacrificial system. They would have had the high priest. They would have had their, their temple worship. They'd have had the, the worship they would do in their synagogue. All of that was a, a part of their, their lives. But they had heard the message of Jesus as the Messiah and they'd put their faith in him. Now, there's a couple different uh, problems that came uh, 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 around the time of the first century. There were the Judaizers who were saying, the Gentiles, you've got to be Jews in order to become Christians. But there was also elements of uh, the message that would go to the Jews that would promote them, you need to just be a Jew. You don't, you don't need to, to be this Christian. And that pressure was on them. And you see different places in, in uh, John and in the book of Acts to where Christians were thrown out of the synagogues and they would lose their position in their society and their culture was against them. We saw that they were also persecuted by the, the uh, Roman authorities. And so they found themselves uh, betwixt and between. And what do we do? And the pressure was heavy on them to go back to their Jewish roots. And to just say, well, that was good my whole life. It's probably going to be good now. So let me just rest there. And the author is urging them to keep moving forward, despite the persecution, despite the hardship, despite the loneliness, that they needed to follow Jesus and move forward. I want to give a quick overview just to remind us so that it's usually these verses that I read today. I mean, these are, these are usually taken completely out of context, right? Not that it's poorly done, but we don't ever think about the context of, of these verses. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's an Easter benediction, right? That, that's one that we'll use regularly there because we're, we're seeing the resurrection. But those who are receiving it are receiving it after not 44 sermons over a, a year, year and a half, but this is all at one time. So they're aware of what he's already said. And so I want us to just remind us to remember what he said earlier. First off, about Jesus and the different things that he had to say. He revealed that Jesus is God in chapter 1. And he makes this very, very clear. In chapter 2, he shows that Jesus is a man like us. In chapter 3, that Jesus is our mediator. In chapters 5 and 7, that Jesus is the great high priest. He reminds us in chapters 8 through 10 of the new covenant in which we live. In chapter 11, he shows us that the saints of old believed this message about Jesus Christ as they looked forward to him coming. And in chapter 12, he turns the focus and he tells us to fix our eyes upon the author and finish of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. That's the context in which he says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. He says, look at all of this that I've told you about Jesus. Won't you trust Him? Won't you just believe and put your trust in Him? And that's the call. And I want that to be a call to us, even though we've spent so much more time considering this passage. But let's not lose the sense of power behind these words. And behind this urging that the author is giving us, won't you trust Jesus for two things? First of all, to trust Jesus for salvation. The author continues to urge faith in Jesus, and the starting point of that faith is salvation. I want us to look at two aspects of that salvation this morning that are, that are drawn particularly from verse 20. Verse 20 says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, he reminds us, first of all, that our salvation involves God reconciling us to himself. 
This is what He has done in our salvation. He's reconciled us to Himself. He says, the God of peace. The God of peace. I want to remind us a little bit about, uh, we'll be looking at a lot of different passages this morning. The first is in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. As he says, the God of peace, surely these Jewish believers would remember the promise. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. That's central to the coming of Christ, central to the incarnation, is the idea of the peace that he will bring, so that even the angels in the night in which he is born sing the great song, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth with men with whom he is pleased. So that recognition that Jesus, in coming to this earth, he was coming to bring peace upon this earth. And peace, as I, it, 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 peace is a challenging word to try to define, not as hard as vanilla, but moving toward it. How do you define peace? And, and the definition that is set in my mind is that peace is when everything is right. You know those moments when you face peace, right? And everything is right. Maybe it's when you're out camping and you're under the stars and, and you're just laying and you're, you're warm. You're not cold. You look up, it's quiet. Just the sounds of the forest. And everything is right. And at that moment, you have peace. For Jesus came to break everything right. We read in James chapter 4 uh, a, a little bit about conflict. And I think by looking at conflict, we can maybe understand how this uh, relates to peace. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And he gives us this idea that the source of the quarrels is the sense inside us that things aren't right. My pleasures are waging war. I want something that I don't have. It isn't right inside me. I'm not at peace, which is the, the concept of peace, that, that peace is gone and therefore there is conflict inside me. Because things are not right. They are not what they ought to be. In Genesis 3.15, we're told that God chose to bring conflict into this world that he might bring peace. For he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he'll crush you on the head and you'll crush him on the heel. The idea that man and the devil had joined together in an unholy alliance and rebellion against God and God was going to bring conflict between them that he might provide peace to the sons and daughters of Eve. And that promise of peace is central to what he brings. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 tells us a little bit more about this, this peace that God provides and that it is, involves reconciliation. He says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the message of reconciliation which he has given to us. It is the gospel. 
that reconciles us to God. The reality that He took our sin upon Himself and paid for it in full. And He provides to us His righteousness as a covering for all of our sin. This is the salvation which is ours. So the question comes to everyone here, and I would be remiss if I did not ask, are you at peace with God? Have you found the reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ, that you put your trust in Him, and you know that He's paid the price for your sin, and you are indeed reconciled to God? Be reconciled today. But He not only reconciles you, He justifies you. He justifies you. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33, which is the doctrinal statement of, of our church, asks the question, what is justification? And the answer is that justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification. There are three things, or four things I want us to notice about that. First of all, we talk about being justified. We're talking about a legal declaration. Um, I'm, I'm aware frequently that I'm almost always preaching to at least two judges in our county, and so I want to be careful when I get into legal issues, and uh, sometimes they come up and correct me, but hopefully uh, they'll wait until after the sermon. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a legal matter, and that is to say that there has been, if you will, an indictment against us that has been brought before the, the holy judge, God himself. And that indictment is a list of all of our sins, every one of them. And we find ourselves guilty of every single one of them. And we stand before this judge. And this judge sees them, knows we have done them, and tells that we are indeed guilty and that we deserve death, which is the wages of sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ, as our attorney steps forward, lifts his hands, which still bear the scars, and says their penalty has been paid in full by me. And so the Father says, forgiven. Because the penalty, the price, has been paid. And that is what our uh, justification is. It's this legal matter. It's an act of God's free grace. It's not something that goes on and on. But it was in a moment. It involves a pardon for our sin. It also involves granting us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's see how this passage unfolds our uh, justification to us. He says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood of the eternal covenant. He has spoken about this covenant in, in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, and I just want to look at verse uh, 12 as the author of Hebrews has, has told us what this, this covenant is. He tells us in verses 8 through 11 that he's bringing this covenant. And then uh, in verse 12 he says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Central to this covenant, the blood of this covenant, this covenant involves the forgiveness of our sins. That's the promise that he gives us. And this blood of the covenant reminds us of that forgiveness. But we also need righteousness. The reality is, no one has enough righteousness by which we can stand before God. And when our sin is taken away, we find ourselves still with nothing to commend us to God. And so God provides for us a righteous covering, if you will, so that we may indeed be able to stand before God. He says that he was brought up from the dead. And Romans 4.25 tells us that he was raised from the dead for our justification. 
I want to turn in, uh, sorry about this, we'll skip a couple slides. I want to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. I'm trying to, I believe it was in 1987 was the first time I ever had a chance to teach in a PCA church. And this is one of the passages that I was uh, able to refer to and to open up as, as we were considering our redemption in Christ. And I think it's one of the most beautiful uh, demonstrations of what justification is all about. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, I want to be clear that the angel of the Lord is the messenger of the Lord is probably the pre-incarnate Christ, that this is the son of God who he's standing before, and Satan is there as well, and Satan is accusing him. Now, as we think about Satan accusing him, I want to keep in mind, if Satan were to bring accusations against you, he could be pretty accurate, couldn't he? I mean, let's be honest, he wouldn't have to really lie. Uh, there's, there's enough there that he could simply state what is real, and I think that's what's happening with Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I think it's important for us to look at that and to realize what he's saying. The filthy garments that he's clothed with are all of his sins. That which the, the devil was sitting there accusing him, just pointing at his nasty garments because this is his sin that covered him. And he says, take that away from him. Remove all of this filth from him. And as we stand before God in that moment when he justifies us, the first thing he does is he removes our filthy garments. Those which we think are probably the best things we got. And he throws it away. He goes on. He says, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Well, if the filthy garments are my sin, what are those festal robes? But the good deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness that are given to me as clothes that I can now wear, that I may enter into the feast. And I love this about Zechariah. It's almost like Zechariah is just watching this, right? And he's seeing it, he's like, this is awesome! Put a turban on his head, right? He's like, I, I got to add to this. I mean, you got you to keep going. He wants, he wants there to be more. Let them put a clean turban on their head. And God says, okay. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we've experienced? We who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that he's taken away all of our sin. Won't you trust him today for your salvation? And trust Jesus, not just for your salvation, but also for your sanctification. Going back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, first we'll read verse uh, 21. May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The 35th question of the Catechism is, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man of the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. Notice, first of all, it's a work, it's not an act. Justification was an act, but sanctification is a work, it's ongoing. 
He continually is working this sanctification in our life. It involves being renewed in the whole man, that, 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 that our old is thrown away and the new is put on. We are empowered to die to sin and to live to righteousness. This is what he does in sanctifying us. And to see this from this passage, look at the word equip. It was a wonderful word study this, this last week. First of all, um, what, I, what I noted of the word equip is that it was in the aorist tense, which is just fascinating in and of itself, isn't it? Well, right? <laughs> Gary's like, amen! <laughs> the aorist means it's a completed action. It's finished. We usually translate it in the, in the past tense. That's not completely the, the, the mindset of the Greek. They aren't as temporally driven as we are. They're, they're the action driven, the idea that this is finished. He's equipped you. You have all the equipment. But the word itself is, is even more fascinating when we begin to look at, at how it's used in other places of Scripture to understand what it means. And the, uh, uh, the best definition I could come up with is to make suitable. So may he make you suitable in every good thing to do his will. It's used in uh, chapter 10, verse 5 of Hebrews as uh, he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have made suitable for me. So that the body that Jesus had as he became a man was suitable. It was just right for him. It was equipped for him to be able to do what he was going to do. And the equipping, a part of that was it was born of a virgin. And so this is the reality that he didn't have that, that indwelling sin as he came in. It's used in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, this passage that talks to us about how we minister to those who are straying, which says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore or equip such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If anyone is, 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 is fallen away, we are to go to them and we are to make them suitable for repentance. We're able to, to give them what they need so that they can turn away from that sin. And I love the, the counsel I was given years ago. It was a, a situation in our, our church. A young lady was in a very uh, difficult spot in, in her life and, and she had sinned. And, and I was talking to an older, experienced pastor about how do you, how do you deal with this? And he said, first and foremost... Your job as a pastor is to step in front of her and take away every conceivable obstacle to repentance. Make it as easy as possible for her to walk that path. And I thought, what wise counsel that's guided me throughout my ministry to recognize how important that is. That's that's what it is to, to restore them, to equip them, to make it suitable for them to be able to make that change and to walk in that path that God is calling them to walk in. In 1 Peter chapter 5, this is also used in verse 10, where we read, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself equip, perfect, make suitable, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That word is used there and it's translated as perfect at that place. To make us suitable for heaven. What a beautiful picture. There are three ways in which this passage shows us that we are made suitable, in which he, he does this in our life. And the first is that uh, you do good. 
there is sometimes the, the desire in, in Christianity to, to just talk about, oh, there's, you know, there's nothing good in us. We don't ever do anything good. We're just horrible, wretched, awful people. And that's all fine and sounds really, really good until I read passages like this and the Bible seems to indicate that it's just false. Because he says that he has equipped us. He has given us equipped for what? Equipped you in every good thing to do his will. Has he equipped us to do every good thing or has he not equipped us to do everything? He has. He has. We have it. We can do that which is good to bring glory and honor to his name. Because it says that he's, he's working, I'm sorry, uh, that it's completed. It is, it is already done. It is the aorist tense. And his will is that which is good. Now some of you are saying, oh, wait a minute, Pastor. I can't do anything good in and of myself. Right? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but some of you are thinking it, right? You who are Christians, when was the last time you were in and of yourself? When was the last time you as a Christian were living without the Holy Spirit inside you? Well, it was before I was a Christian, right? right? So right now, are you in and of yourself? No. Is the Holy Spirit in you? Absolutely. Can you do good with the Holy Spirit inside you? Yes, you can. And that's the promise that Jesus even gives us in, in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. As he reminds us of the reality of the Spirit coming to us, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. That you know him, because, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. The Spirit of truth is inside us, and he is not just some, some passive entity just floating around inside us. But he is the true and the living God who is actively working inside our lives. What's he doing? He's working in us that which is pleasing to God. Think about it for a moment. You do love, don't you? Not perfectly. I didn't say you love perfectly. But you do love, and isn't that good? You do forgive, and that is good. You do resist temptation. You do witness. You haven't done that just all in your own strength, but that's the Spirit of God working in you, and you've done it, right? And it's good that God has done inside you and that you have done in coordination with the Holy Spirit. It is good. It is a great good that you have done. You do good. You also please God. I remember sitting with a, uh, a friend, an elderly woman who was passing away. And I asked her to imagine what Jesus will look like when she sees him. Just that idea of what will his face be. And she dropped her head and began to weep. She said, I think he's just deeply disappointed in me. My heart just broke. As I began to show her from the scripture the falseness of that statement. For her to begin to see that he takes great joy and delight in her and that she will never see anything but his smile upon his face. That when she looks at him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. As he promises to bring her into ever closer relationship with God the Father. He says in verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And the word working is a, is a temporal participle in the present tense, meaning you could translate it while working. 
while working. This is happening at the, at, the, at the time in which he accomplished this. He's doing this work in our lives, ongoing, enabling us to do that which is pleasing to God. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We who are walking in them are doing that which is pleasing to God. And he is pleased, not because we're so awesome in and of ourselves, because Jesus is so awesome and we still have those festal robes and the turban that are covering us and the work of the Spirit that is changing us and transforming us. This is the work of sanctification. I want to think for just a moment about what it is that pleases God. What pleases Him? Two passages to draw your attention to. The first is from 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Um, does that sound familiar, Providence? Um, for those who maybe are visiting, uh, two of our members passed away in this past week, and, and it's uh, heartbreaking. One of them just, just last night, and, and so there's an element of, of grief and also an element of jealousy within us because this Lord's Day, they're sitting in front of Jesus, and we got to have this. As wonderful as this is, theirs is better, and, and we miss them as well. And, and so this is the, the reality of, of what we're facing, and we go through these various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that's how precious our faith is. It's so precious that God is determined to use everything in our lives to refine that faith, to strengthen our faith, to enable us more and more to trust Jesus Christ because Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one that comes to Him must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. It's faith that pleases God. We don't always value faith that much, do we? I'd rather see than believe. And I don't say that pridefully. That's just a reality and a condemnation. That I need to value faith the way God values faith. That it's what pleases Him. I assert that you please God. But you may be asking, but, but what about my sin, Pastor? What about my sin? Now, some of you immediately look up behind me and you say, oh, I think you've got that settled, right? Jesus died for that sin. But there's another element that, uh, I can't remember the author who, who brought this up. I, I think it was uh, Max Licato. And uh, he made the point of, of saying, when God looks at us, we think he sees, oh, you failed again when we sin, right? Isn't that a little bit of what we, we anticipate? That he's like, you blew it again. But that's because that's what our reaction would be, we who are caught up in the temporal existence of, of our being. God, who is outside time, doesn't see that. He sees the whole, doesn't he? He knows that you're going to fall in that sin 1,317 times. And he knows that was your 317th time. He's like, yes! A thousand less! That's all you got left. You got a thousand more times, and then you're then you're free. He knows exactly how long it'll be until you are completely and totally, utterly free from all sin. 
one of the events in my life that reminded me of that is a, a, a dear friend of mine. I was talking with him at one point, and he was telling me that he was trying to go out and to get heroin. And I'm working with him, trying to discourage that and talking with him. There's other options. We can do something. And he says, I'm just gonna. And the next night I got a call. I had to go into the emergency room. And he had overdosed. And I realized, here's a brother. He loved the Lord Jesus. He was just married a gal, was stepfather to her kids, and was building this new family. And this horrible sin had got a hold of him. And yet God was setting him free from that sin, wasn't he? That was the last time. He never fell again. And God will set us free. Now, it may not be the, you know, we think that we want to have the story of victory and make a movie about it, right? That, uh, uh, but God says, oh, I have a better story. I have a better story. I will set you free, and I'll set you free completely and totally. That's what God thinks about our sins, so that we do please him. You do good, you please God, and we glorify Jesus. He says, to whom be the glory? To whom be the glory? Have you ever heard the phrase, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick? I like that. Can you, and, and you can imagine, you know, just a branch off your tree and you're trying to, to, to set up a, a straight line and you set it down there and you just trace along it. But for God, he could trace along it and as he pulls it off, it's now perfectly straight, right? Because he can do that. He's able to accomplish things along those lines. He uses us, sinful, fallen, broken people, to do one of the most amazing things, and that is to bring glory and honor to himself. Somehow through us, he reflects himself in this world. Somehow through us, like the, the song, that we are lights on the storm sea of night, that we can be that reflection of God in this world by which he is glorified. Every one of us. What a wonderful truth that is. To recognize that, he does that through us. Trust him to sanctify you because he's already equipped you to do good, to please him, and to bring glory to his name. Again, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew believers. They believed and they doubted and they're tempted to, to leave. And yet he calls them to trust Jesus and he reveals to them who Jesus is and he begins to conclude this lesson to them by saying, Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. After everything you've heard about Jesus, won't you trust him? Won't you trust him for salvation? Won't you trust him for sanctification? Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would work faith in each and every one of our hearts, from the youngest to the oldest, that we would indeed trust you and your work in our lives. Father, we ask that you would give this blessing to the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.